I've uh, had the privilege of sharing my story with um, groups of people and, and even a greater privilege of sharing my story with uh, men who have sat across the, the table from me at a coffee place uh, on a number of occasions. You know, when you get 60 years old, you got a long story. On Monday night, I was writing my story, and Tyler, our Tanya's son, my stepson, was over at the house doing his laundry, and and uh, I said, Tyler, man, I don't know, I don't know if I can get this in in 20 minutes. I mean, I'm 60 years old, and I got 20 minutes to do this. And uh, if you know Tyler very well, he's very insightful. He's a very insightful person. He thinks very deeply. And so there was this like minute of pause, and then he goes, "Well, gee, that's like." three minutes a decade. <laughs> so I guess the, the point is that uh, there's a lot more to my story than the, what I'm going to share with you in the next 20 minutes, but that's, that's what I have. And um, as I was thinking about this, I, you know, I can identify with Paul, uh, the apostle, in that uh, he referred to himself as a wretched man, oh wretched man that I am, and he also referred to himself as the chief of sinners. And then he also had a lot more to say about God, and, and I would too, if uh, I had more time, because uh, he said things like, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. And um, so there are a lot of stories in my story that I could tell you that would uh, that would point out that I have been a wretched man, and that I have been at times the chief of sinners. And there's also a lot of stories I could tell you that uh, would convince you, I believe, that nothing, nothing, can separate you from the love of God. So, my life story. I was raised in a small farming community in West Texas. My parents were childhood products of the Great Depression. They grew up relatively poor. Both had scars to show from that tragedy. Dad worked a civil service job after his stint in the military, as well as farming, raising cattle, and several other projects to raise money for our family. Mom worked as an accountant, kept the home, canned vegetables, sewed clothes, and of course, balanced the budget. My parents worked night and day, and they saved every penny they made. One never knew when the next Great Depression might come. They instilled in me a powerful work ethic, but family life in my house was not a source for nurturing in my childhood. My father was a workaholic who ruled the roost with rage. He was not physically abusive, but I was terrified of his verbal tirades. My mother suffered from obsessive-compulsive disease and extreme fear. When riding in a car, if she were not driving, she occupied the back seat and kept her head down beneath the seat because she feared accident or injury. Both parents abandoned her in her childhood due to an early death, so she struggled mightily with feeling unprotected and insecure. She married her first husband at age 18, only to have him physically and sexually abuse her in later years. She divorced the man when she read of his upcoming, upcoming marriage to another woman in the local newspaper. Despite the dysfunction in my parents' younger years, 
They would be considered by most to be God-fearing people of faith. They attended the local Baptist church regularly, and of course, I had to tag along. I learned quite a bit about God from Sunday school teachers and possibly from the pastor's preaching. He could usually get my attention as a little boy when he started yelling from the pulpit. But I never really formed a relationship with God. I felt God was distant, angry, and preoccupied with too many other things to pay any attention to me. So I did not particularly have any interest in him either. A lot like a lot like my dad. My father was chairman of the deacons and taught a Sunday school class, and my mother served in various ways around the church as well. It was all smiles around the folks at church, but it was a much different in our home. My parents spent their time either working outside the home or fighting inside it. From my earliest years, my parents seemed to have very heated arguments at times to the, that it got to the point of being ugly and physical. For a small child, it was a form of home and family. I just wanted to escape. I will say this, though. By the time I reached adulthood, my parents seemed to have worked out a lot of their differences. And in their old age, Dad was a model of a loving husband as my mother suffered and eventually died of Alzheimer's disease. For this, I loved and admired them very much. They stayed married for over 50 years, Dad just passing away a few years ago. By the time I was eight or nine years old, I made a conscious, childish decision to withdraw from the chaos of my home. I spent as much time as I could outside, usually with my dog. I lived a Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn lifestyle, going my own way and doing my own thing. I had friends, and we did a lot of fun things. We were constantly thinking about crazy ways to have fun and create projects that could send us on an adventure. Just to give you an example of what that was like for me, at age 13, some of my friends and I, none older than myself, rode motorcycles from my hometown through the back roads of West Texas all the way to the border of Oklahoma, 200 miles away. We rode back again all in the same day. My parents never asked where I was or what I did that day. The core belief that developed was this. They did not care and I did not matter. Was instilled in me in these developmental years. I was very independent but unattached. I entered my teens with a subconscious drive to gain worth, be acknowledged, loved, and be a part of something, a family. I was smart, driven to achieve, and busy, very busy. I worked two and three jobs at a time in high school during the summers, played sports, participated in slide rule and math competitions, 4-H, and still found time to make pretty good grades. I made straight A's, was an all-state golfer, started on the football team, was competitive in academic competitions, and liked by most everyone young and old. I was a good kid. My senior year, I was class president and considered most likely to to succeed. I also drank heavily, chased a few girls. Seemingly, I never caught one. I was liked by all, but really known by no one. And I did not know anyone else either, especially God. Though I attended church and youth group nearly every Sunday, I didn't know God. But that was about to change. Just before my senior year in high school, my youth pastor invited me to youth camp. 
youth camp. That's for nerds, I thought. I think it might have been squares back then. But, but I decided to go literally because my pastor told me that it would be a lot of fun and I'd get to play sports. And after all, hey, I could miss a week of work. I had no other agenda, but God most certainly did. Each night at that camp, a preacher who didn't look a lot older than myself explained in detail what it was like to have a relationship with Jesus. The Spirit of God started doing a number on my heart. Church folks call it uh, coming under conviction. I just call it reaching out and taking a hold of my heart and soul. Something was going on inside me that was opening my heart to the reality I truly did not know God, but that I wanted to and I needed to. It was not there at that camp, but weeks later in the quietness of the night in my bedroom at home, I was what the Bible refers to as born again. I had been contemplating what to do about all the thoughts and feelings I was having about a relationship with God. But one thing was clear. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. I did not care, and He did not matter. Burdened by this heart knowledge, I slid out of my bed onto my knees in the night. My simple prayer was, I really don't know you, but I want to. Please forgive me for my sin and come into my heart. I was born again, but being born is only the beginning of life, right? Almost immediately, I saw everything in a different light. Church was no longer a place where I sat on the back row amongst the other youth who were fighting off a hangover. It was where I could connect, feel loved and accepted and hang out with a few people who felt like I did about this new relationship with Jesus. I had this strange urge to read the Bible, talk about Jesus, and I began to pray almost every night in my bedroom on my knees by my bed. The very place I met Jesus was the place I loved to go to spend time with Him. Yet still there was this unresolved wound within me to arrive at some destination in life. I really wasn't really sure where I was going. I wanted to rid myself of this core belief that they did not care and I did not matter. Of course, I learned to manage by forging ahead alone, independent, using my intelligence and work ethic to strive for my nirvana. I raced through college and medical school in seven years and I was accepted to a well-respected residency. In my first year of residency, I met and married a fine Christian woman. By my second year in private practice in Little Rock, we were happily married with two small children and one on the way. We had a nice home and my practice was thriving. I was liked by most, admired by many, and I was loved by my wife and children. I had reached my goal. There was a problem, however. The rigors of medical school, residency, marriage, family, and a busy medical practice had displaced my connection with Jesus. I no longer read my Bible, prayed on my knees in my bedroom, or regularly spent time with others who were pursuing a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the root and the trunk of the vine. You are the branches. A person cannot survive without staying plugged into me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The house I had built for myself was built on sand and not on the solid foundation of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. And a storm was brewing. 
Just another year into private practice, my two partners decided suddenly and rather simultaneously to stop delivering babies. We were doing 90 to 120 deliveries per month then, and I was left with a workload. It struck the chords of my, it struck the chords of my core belief. They don't care, and I don't matter. I handled it the way I'd learned from childhood, childishly. I tried to stay in control of things by raging as my father did, acting independently, working harder, and going my own way. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, was left out of that equation. I became constantly angry, depressed, and withdrawn. Rather than addressing it with partners who were 20 years my senior, I stuffed the pain and anger and released it at home onto my wife and children who were both undeserving and incapable of providing the help I needed. It drove them literally and figuratively to the opposite ends of our home. My daughter has told me there were times when I came home from work angry and raging that she would grab her brothers and find refuge in a closet outside of, out of fear. What is most terribly sad is that none of my friends, at least not for a long time, had any idea what was going on inside of me. Just like home, I was either working outside the home or fighting inside of it. Just like childhood, I had a lot of friends and was well-liked, but none of them really knew me. I have often said about those times, I was in the presence of people, but I was never present with people. Finally, I reached out for help, or more truthfully, my wife reached out for a few good friends. I got support, counseling, and changed my work habits to improve my life. With the help of a counselor, antidepressants, and encouragement from some people who had a deep, strong relationship with Jesus, I was able to resolve a lot of my anger and stop raging. I acquired a couple of partners, and my workload became more manageable. Our family came out, came out of the decline we had been experiencing, but as I look back on it now, there were wounds from my anger and rage that were never addressed, especially between my wife and I. Still, Jesus was not the center of my life. And though I had made some changes in my life, I do not believe my spiritual life had become much deeper. Years passed and life became more calm for us. The kids got older and easier to manage. They were good kids and didn't cause us trouble or heartache. My wife and I seemed to get along fairly well, but the intimacy in our marriage seemed never to be the same. Uh, emotional. There was a very tangible distance. Perhaps Jesus wasn't at the center. My practice, now several doctors strong, was successful. I was now in my mid-40s and I was on top again. But apparently being affluent, having a decent family, and being successful is not enough. What does a self-made man do who builds a big barn and fills it with grain? He builds a bigger barn. We, decide, we decided with the practice doing well, money in the bank, and the kids needing more space and bigger toys, we, move, we would move to the country, buy some land, and build a big house. We did that, and all went well. For the first time in our lives, however, we got internet in our home. I don't know quite, I don't know to this day why I decided to view pornography, but I assure you it was a costly mistake. One day I viewed some pornography. That turned into every few days, and every few days turned into almost every day. 
After a while, it seemed I spent every waking hour thinking about acting out with pornography. I was seemingly, seemingly, hopelessly addicted to lust. It was like cocaine to me. The only time I didn't want it was immediately after I used it. I was enslaved to an addiction, engulfed by guilt and shame, and I felt completely hopeless. Why, if people knew what I was doing, I would lose my family and friends, my job and my career, and everyone would depart from me. They would no longer care, and I would no longer matter. Despair and depression took over after a while. I made a decision to end my life. I planned it, but before I carried it out, I took a look at my life insurance policy to see if it was in order. I read where if I died from suicide, my wife would not get the money. I simply could not cause her any more harm. So I began to pray for God to take me. I prayed every morning for God to take me. Every day I woke to the pain and shame and I asked God to take me out of this hell on earth. God had a much, much different idea. After two years into this self-imposed misery, a patient of mine propositioned me for a sexual encounter. I crossed that personal, marital, and professional boundary. This is not in my story I've written today, but I just wanted to interject this as I was thinking about this last night and this morning. You know, a person, a professional, a a person in a profession is supposed to act professionally. I was not a victim, I was a perpetrator. Um, I just wanted to say that. Just a few days later, she called me to inform me that if I did not place several thousand dollars in her bank account that day, she would call my office and tell the manager we had been together. I didn't care anymore at that point. I was disgusted with myself and my life. Indeed, she called my office, told my manager, who told my partners, who all confronted me. What I could not find the courage to do, God did for me. He literally grabbed me by the collar and threw me out of the darkness of night and into the light of day. God is sovereign. When confronted by my partners, I confessed to what I had done and to my struggles with addiction. There were immense consequences to my sinful actions. I was immediately asked to leave the practice. My wife, for biblically sound reason and, and after much counsel with church leadership, divorced me. My children withdrew from me. Friends, mostly people who did not understand addiction, isolated themselves from me, and I lost my career as I knew it, my home, my belongings, and a whole lot of money, which I found to be the very least of things I have grieved. Hebrews 12:6. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He strikes hard everyone He considers His son. Job 5:18. He wounds, but also binds. He strikes, but his hands also heal. Hosea 6.1 Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, that he might heal us. He has struck us down, but he will pick us up and make us secure. God took everything I relied on for life so that he could become life for me. Many years have passed since that day. I left Little Rock to receive months of treatment for my addiction and several other mental and emotional disorders. I even underwent several weeks of a program that addresses character defects of which I've discovered I have many. But none of that could have replaced what God has done in my life to redeem and restore me. 
When I returned from the wilderness of a treatment center, I found myself in a city where I knew not a soul. I began to attend a church which placed Jesus at the center of its ministry, and it provided a place for people like me in the form of a recovery ministry. Matthew 9.10 says this, one of my favorite verses. It says, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. I shared honestly about who I was and where I was in life. A group of men who loved Jesus and had those deep roots in him literally carried me to the healer day after day, week after week, until I could walk on my own. I spent several years getting to know the real Jesus the Bible talks about. I read my Bible like a man desperately needed for, needy for God. I spent a lot of my time at church and small group meetings surrounding myself with people who knew Jesus really well and were a lot like Him. And I constantly got out on my knees by my bedside in my bedroom and prayed to God in the night, please change me. I forsook the life I had forged and reached out for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm still doing those things to this day. God tore me down, but He built me into a new man, a man who loves Him and others better than ever before. He gave me what the Bible clearly states is a gift of favor from Him, my lovely wife, Tanya. We have been married for five years now. I now work as a physician and medical director for a correctional facility where all sex offenders have to serve their time. Do you even think for a moment that's a coincidence? After years of silence, my children have reached out to me. We are pursuing the restoration of our relationship. I spend almost every Thursday evening with a group of men who are real and honest about their life struggles. It is a blessing and a privilege. I even at times get to encourage and walk with a man whose life has been ravaged by his addiction. Some have found life again. Things like these give meaning, give life meaning and purpose with Jesus at the center running the show. He truly cares and I do matter. There's much more I could say and many more stories of Jesus I could tell. But the writer of John says it best. And there are many other things that Jesus has done, which if it were written down one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. I want to thank you for letting me share my story. And um, um, I guess the only thing I'd like to share is that is to offer you an invitation that if you've uh, that you if you don't have Jesus in your life that you would um, would get him and that if you do have him in your life that you would pursue him and if you have pursued him and have experiences with him uh, then share that with the world. Thanks.
very vulnerably with you uh, some details that, as he said, uh, God had to expose because he was unwilling to at one point in his life. Um, uh, so as we open up for a time for you guys to, to ask some questions and to respond uh, and maybe hear some more from Mike or if Tanya's willing from Tanya, um, just being, being mindful of, of his courage that he was willing uh, to, to go through this morning. Frank, would you be willing to come back and then anybody got the microphone there? Do you reflect on your notes? Is there a question or a comment or something that comes up? said that um, sweet. Good timing. you said that God exposed what you were unwilling to expose um, by, by the woman that you described um, I guess number one what was the fear so uh, understand when we have sin and guilt and shame and we're unwilling to expose that what fears caused you to hide it and then when you were finally exposed, how did that compare to the fear that caused you to continue to keep things hidden? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are a lot of fears uh, that uh, not only myself, but uh, many here could identify with the fear of rejection, uh, the fear of loss. Um, the, the fear of loss of life as I knew it. Um, the, um, you know, for that to come to light was, uh, you know, was extremely painful. Uh, the consequences were extremely painful, but uh, very necessary. Very necessary because I think that accomplished two purposes. One is, um, one was to, I remember what it was like, and I don't want to go back, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> you know, when you get a whooping, you don't want another whooping. <laughs> and uh, and I'm thankful that God may have gave me a good whooping, because <laughs> I, sure, I sure think of that. When, when thoughts of acting out come into my mind, I sure think a lot about that. Also, uh, um, Also, the I guess the gift of that was that the gift of that is that I'm a lot more open person, and you know I went through it, and hey, I'm still alive, so hey, I can be open and honest, and I am with most everyone. I mean, sort of a bonus of all that was the fact that um, I have uh, I might be deceiving myself, but I don't think so. Uh, there's not a person on earth, I don't care whether you're out on the street with a sign saying, I need money, or whether you're sitting in the desk of a CEO, I'd treat all those people the same. Because I have a deep understanding of that I have been uh, a wretched man and a, and a chief of sinners. And so it, uh, whereas I 
wouldn't pay. I don't know how many of you were here last week, but the little, the little black fellow that his truck broke down, um, I wouldn't have given him the time of day had not I experienced what I have experienced. And so in that way, it's a gift. It's a, it's a real gift. Questions. I would ask, say, so I, as a teenager, you feel you were saved, right? Or convicted. Mm -hmm. And then, as life went on, you kind of lost sight of God, or however you want to say. First question: Do you feel you were lost? And then, yes, as all your life transpired, do you feel that your previous conviction of God is what made you feel that shame and everything? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if a person, uh, if a per, if a per, there's two things. If a person doesn't feel guilt uh, or shame when he sins, um, that's a red flag. The second thing is if he eventually doesn't get disciplined by God, if he doesn't humble himself, God will humble him. That's a. In fact, Hebrews talks quite a, uh, firmly about the fact that hey, if God's not disciplining you, you're not, you're illegitimate. You're not his kid. Uh, but as a, if you'll remember in my stories that, you know, being born is just the start. Being born, you know, and, and I, I honestly think that's where a lot of traditional churches miss the mark. Because I hear them say, you know, they present an awesome gospel message and really, you know, really bring it home. But then after that, it, it, they sort of leap to this uh, where you're, where your life resembles Christ so much that it draws people to Him, but that's not the case. Uh, in fact, if you don't, if you don't pray, which to me is breathing, if you don't continually ask to be filled by His Spirit, which is water, and if you don't feed on His Word, which is food, then you're not going to grow. You're just going to stay a little baby. And and when I and when when I'm back there when I was 18. And born again, I was just a little baby. I still did things just like I did growing up, and 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 did uh, with not a great some change, but not a great deal change for a great many years of my life. But then I started feeding, and then I started being hanging around with people who were who were deepening their relationship with Jesus, and I started praying on a consistent basis, and 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 the Word of God. It was I was just uh, desperate. You know, I got desperate for God. And Jesus said, when you seek me, when you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And so uh, there are a lot of people, I think, who are born again, truly born again. Uh, there was such an alteration in my feeling and thinking and my being at that moment when I invited Christ in my life that it, it's it's... It's uh, you can't explain it away, or you you it you you just there. There's nothing else could it could be but Jesus. It was just uh, I was just uh, lit up. I mean, I just was lit up uh, by Jesus. But my lack of breathing and drinking and feeding, you know, it just you never grow. Yeah, I assume I think the question. This is an assumption, correct me if I'm wrong, but the question comes, I think, from our struggle. We, I think a lot of times we get this mentality that 
got Christians and you got bad people. I mean, you've got this mentality that Christians would never be adulterers, addicts, and this and that. So either you're not who you say you are, or there's something broken in this process. And we, we struggle to, to rationalize how a, uh, a child of God can be an addicted, adultering, and that doesn't, that doesn't compute sometimes. But a child of God can have a filthy mouth and bad attitude. You know, it's, it's almost like we, we, we think you can be Christian and, and, and have normal struggles. But to be a Christian and to have that weighty of, of struggles, I, I think sometimes in our gospel that we understand, we, we struggle to understand that. We don't, you know, we Christians, we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run around with girls that do. My kids, but, my, you I know. can't remember which kid it was this week, maybe it was Micah. Um, she was talking, we, we talked about heaven and hell on a regular basis, I, they bring it up, I don't know what happens, but um, maybe it's brand, anyways, we're talking about heaven and, and who we're going to get to see and we're going to get to see Amara, we're going to see this and that. Say, yeah, yeah. And they're like, but the people that are in jail, they're going to be with Satan. I'm like, not necessarily. They still have an opportunity to receive and put their hope in Jesus. You know, but I think my kids are a good representation of what even us as adults very naturally think and process. It's like the people that are in jail, those are the bad people. They'll be with Satan. Everybody else will get a chance. According to Old Testament law, David would have been stoned for his for his actions, but he was the guy, I believe, that God said a man after my own heart. That's what we, It's a, for us sometimes that's kind of like oil and water and not part of a continuum. Just to get kind of technical, I guess so. I know there's different beliefs on it, but some say once saved, always saved, or some say that you could lose your salvation at any second. Do you, as a preacher, I guess, I'm going to say, what do you believe in this situation? Would you say that he was truly lost, or was he still a Christian, so to say, and, and found, truly found salvation again? Yeah, that, as a, whether I'm a pastor or whether I'm just a guy on the street, I, I was asked the same question a number of years ago by a church that I served, and they didn't like my answer, so you may not like it either. Um, I'm indifferent. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you believe I'm, yeah. a, I'm a grown man. They, were, so. they, they, they had a very smaller box than we operate in now, but they asked me the same question, and I said, whether you're a follower of Christ or whether you're not, I'm going to lead you to repentance. Right, so... Whether you belong to Jesus or whether you don't is not for me to decide, but for me to urge you and compel you towards repentance, whether you're following Jesus or whether you're not, I think that's always the right answer. So, according to his story, I would assume Mike was a child of God, a prodigal, just like Jesus talked about in the prodigal son. That guy was still a son, even though he was in Vegas spending all his money on prostitutes. He was still a son. And the father was just waiting on him 
and, and hoping for the day that he would return. And I would say that that's a very good description of, of Mike's story and a lot of our stories. Um, and and, and the, the, res, the proper response for that, that man who was a son already was just to turn and go back home. You know? And if you're not a son already, you have a father that longs for, to adopt you and the proper response is to turn and go to his home. You know, so for me, as, as a believer in Jesus, whether I'm a pastor or not, it's always compelling towards repentance. And, and if you're a son, go home. If you're not a son, you have a home. Go there. Um, I would say in his story, kind of answered my question, but if you look at it this way, so he was a Christian. He said it. He was, his sins were brought to the light. Mm-hmm. I don't think... I don't think that was just a happenstance, you know. I think God brought it to the light. So. You called it God's sovereignty. You can say it's God's grace, it's God's sovereignty. All but, of that. But actually, what's what's interesting is when Mike said that, he's like, he got exposed what I was unwilling to expose. That was an act of God's grace. Mm-hmm. Because he was a prisoner of all the things that you were unwilling and didn't want to be exposed. And mm-hmm. now you, you've built yourself a prison that you live in and it owns you. But when God exposed that, he set you free. Now, it was a painful process that stripped away everything that you had said you had built your life on. I had work, I had family, I had a home, I had all these things that I thought if I built these things, then life would be good. But actually, when God set you free, he actually took all those things away in order to set you free. He he, he took what you called your nirvana. If I can build this, then then I've arrived. Mm which was a false gospel that leads to some dark places. It's a mirage. To, yeah. You know, if I just had this, this, and this, uh, everything would be good. It's all a mirage. It's all a mirage. You know, in that story of the prodigal son, you know, it, people don't talk about the one little phrase in there that is quite significant, and that is uh, when he got down to his last, you know, his last... Uh, uh, dime and his last pea pod, what happened? It says God brought a drought. Made it worse. He made it worse. Uh, uh, but it was that. It was that. He got finally got fed up and said, I'm going home. Man, at least I can be a at least I can get three meals in a cot, you know, when I get home. And so God disciplined. God brought uh, Misery and discipline on his son because he knew he would, he knew where he would go, he knew where he would go when it got bad enough. Anybody else got anything on mind that you want to say or ask? Lost people just get more bitter. They just get more bitter, and their heart hardens. Say this from a parent. When did? It's always good to raise your kids in church. Like I said, they kind of know where to go. Even when they get older and go away, they kind of know where to go. So Training child. It's important for us to bring our kids to church, you know, have them raised in church. That way they know where to go back to. But more, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. More importantly is to model Jesus in your home. Because. Because, I mean, you, you, you described an upbringing that was kind of confusing because what you heard in church didn't match what you saw in the house so I think when those two things work in unison 
then your children have a really good chance of growing up with a, a heart and a passion for Jesus. But when they grow up and they see one thing spoken of in the church and another thing modeled in the home, it becomes very confusing. It takes, like your story, it takes me a number of years to work these things out and to reconcile what I've seen and what I've heard. And now I'm 18 before I actually give the gospel a chance. Yeah. And not defaulting to how you manage life as a child. I kept defaulting back to what, because I had been trained up in the way I should go. It takes, that's the other thing about you're asking about being saved and how can you mess everything up after you're saved. Well, that's the default. That's what's got to be, got to be, what scripture says, that's got to be put off and then his way of living has to be put on. And it goes back to one of Sean's favorite <clears throat> things to always quote from as well. You've got to be transformed by renewing your mind so that you respond to life differently other than... Because right now, your kids are learning to respond to life according to how you do. And they're going to imitate you until they're transformed into another way of thinking. So if you can model Christ in your home and they can hear the gospel in the church, then, then responding in a gospel-centered way will become very natural for our kids. But they're going to model what they see in your home before they imitate what they've heard in the church. Because it's going to be a lot more natural. Something else I kind of gleaned out of your story, too, is just the importance of the father's role in the home, in the household, and where you go. And all the statistics actually further that and follow that up when it's the dad who leads through the house, who leads through getting you to church, who leads through the example of the kids, the family following it, just. about mother wounds. It's the father that has the ability to wound. Your history, all your great cynics, all your great people with the major issues and major problems are always the father parallel was something that I picked up as well. And I wonder what led to his transformation. She said, you know, later in life, you know, the anger and the, the home life I think it. I think at some point my father quit being afraid of being poor, and uh, he started to be more secure. I think that's a lot of what drove my mom and dad was the the wound, the tragedy of the Great Depression, because both sets, both their fathers lost their farm, and uh, they were very destitute. My mom. My mom got an orange for Christmas one year, and she valued it so much that she sat it on the windowsill and just held it every day because she knew if she ate it, it would be gone. And it went, it went rotten. It rotted. She didn't know as a little girl it would go rotten, and she never got to eat it. But that's how precious an orange was. She was so poor. That's a very big, deep wound. And I think that... Uh, I think that uh, Drove, was what drove them a lot. Fear is powerful. Yeah. That's why Jesus, you know, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. That's even when you were leading up to this week and you're like, hey, 
there's some fear rising up and even telling this to this group of people. And, and I've gone through a lot of fear over the last week too, and you just, you, you have to re rehearse to yourself. Fear does not come from Christ. It is not, it's not originating from Him. My fear comes from the enemy. My fear comes from another source. And um, the closer we put Christ to the center, the less we have to fear, right? But it, it can it can ruin a man to be fearful. I think that was one thing. If I could put it back into the story, but I don't remember exactly how you worded it. It's not being accepted, and where you're at, and then I wrote down that you know that all seemed to change when you developed that intimate relationship with God, and that loving relationship back and forth it transitioned and started flowing out of you my core belief through much of my life has been they don't care and I don't matter whoever they are at the time right. and when they don't care and I didn't matter then what the why should I you know the heck care about anything myself and that's when I would that's when at times like that is when I have and you know that can still that can still kick in, in certain circumstances I've heard I've caught myself saying uh, well they don't it doesn't matter anyway bad place to be so I have to be watch that I haven't asked this can I ask your permission Tanya to, to give some of your feedback as well would you be willing to come up and do that up here where people can, can see you and hear you? <laughs> if you're going to be a leader at any point in any place, you should ask permission before the moment, so I apologize for, for what I just did. Sounds uh, sharing. Said no, but then she would have felt bad, so um, completely my fault. Me and Tanya have enough history, she'll just get angry at me and it'll be okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so my thought with, with with Tanya, and if anybody else has a thought as well, uh, it's one thing for Mike to stand up here and say, here's what I did, and here's, here's how I believe God's grace has been good to me and, and forgiven me and cleansed and restored, but it's another thing for Tanya, I believe, to, to, to know all the details that Mike just shared and many more, and to say, I give you my life. And I'm going to... I'm going to go back to what we talked about a number of weeks ago and that I'm going to be a wife who submits to my husband even though I know all the details of all the years before we ever met. Um, that's why I think that, that y'all's marriage at this point is such a beautiful picture of the gospel that you're, you're intentionally saying I submit to you as my husband. I want to be your wife and I'm going to love you. No, she's, she's, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Uh, so I just, what are the, I don't even know what or how to ask this, let me start with the obvious, are there any, you can tell me that's too personal, I don't care, you okay. derail this question however you want to, you know that's got to be difficult on some days, okay, yes. can I just be honest yes. and say that, that, yes. Loving a man that has a past and, and that sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile in our brain, 
we get that that's what you're supposed to do, but it's got to be hard some days. So, so is there any insight to the difficulty and then what allows you to just you, to be gospel-centered and love your husband even on a difficult day? Well, his story, or a lot of it, spilled out on our first date. <laughs> the first day, first time we met, spilled out. Um, uh, I think I've always seen him from the very beginning as the man he wants to be, that he wants to be for God. And he didn't do that to me. You know, and if he's worked through it and asked for forgiveness and God has forgiven him, I can't hold it over him. I mean, I have faith in him and faith in God that, you know, to work things out. Now, on a practical level, from the very beginning, like I said, he's been upfront and honest. And on a practical level, he's still, after all this time, he will usually text me, this is where I'm at, this is where I'm going, this is how long I'm going to be there. Um, we have covenant eyes. I don't know if any of y'all know what that is. It's an internet accountability program. We have covenant eyes on all of our phones and our computers. And that's his idea. It's a report that we get each from each other about where we've been and what we're doing online and stuff and like that. There are several men who are Yeah, there are several men that get that report as well every week. I mean, he's he's very he's been very upfront and very honest about his past and about making sure I feel secure because of his past and where that has gone and in all of those now, do I have days of like doubt and worry? Of course. Where have you been? You, you know, where have you been? So, but that doesn't happen too often. It's gotten better yeah. through the years. Yeah. So, but we don't. We're, we talk sometimes about not letting our guard down. I think after being married five years, it's easy to let your guard down and say, oh, we're good. And we're not good. I mean, we're always going to have to be careful. We're mindful, even watching TV. Before we watch a movie, we go look it up on what's the sexual activity level in it. And there's many movies we choose not to watch because because of that. And that I think that's a good thing, no matter what your history is. I think it's a really good thing. And that's what I was thinking. It's like, okay, there's, there's a lot of things that y'all are talking about because of... <coughs> your history, but I think there's everything that you're talking about translates really well to marriage in general. So what is, do you have anything that you would say, you know, any wisdom or counsel for a woman, a wife, or somebody just in, I don't know, just dealing with your, your, your significant other and just how to don't get wrapped up and driven by fear and emotion, but here's something I've learned in loving. And is there just anything that you've learned that you'd like to share? I think Matthew said about praying, and praying is like breathing. And I know a prayer he says most every morning to me is just help me through this day and keep me safe and you know, keep me prayer every morning as you start your day, you know, help me love him, help me 
trusting you and God really more than I trusted him that you're, you know, that help me through this day, that whatever the day may hold, of making sure my reaction was glorified you know, to that day. Uh, I, I, prayer, I think you need someone to talk to. Prayer is talking to God, but I think you, as a woman, if your husband has had that history of an affairs or pornography or something like that, I think it's, I think it's good to have someone that can hold you accountable to. I think you have to have someone you can be honest with, what you're struggling with. Like. Yeah. Anybody have any comment or question for Tanya? So, um, so I've been like praying, trying to get a deeper understanding of what it is to be a, a wife with grace, and like how to show grace towards your husband. Is there like anything that you can speak towards that? Like, what is your idea of grace as a wife? If that's not just <laughs> A huge question. <laughs> um, it's a huge question. I don't know if I could come up with something profound off the top of my head. Um, I think it's just recognizing in yourself that he needs grace, but I need grace. I need grace too. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know. I need grace too. So I have to extend it to him because I, I need it myself. I read in that. And it's, it's helped me sometimes with arguments and different things that we may be struggling with in a marriage thing that I did with some ladies before about just picture Jesus standing behind your husband's shoulder. Would you still talk to him that way? <laughs> you know, if you Oh, the Jesus card. <laughs> you know, he was, Jesus was literally standing behind your husband's shoulder. Would you still talk to him? Would you still say no or, you know, or not be willing to give that or whatever it is? And I, I, I sat and had breakfast with Mike the other day and he shared this and even some other things. And one of the things that you shared then that you didn't share now that Tanya just kind of alluded to was um, Mike has submitted himself to other authorities on his own. Like part of your restoration and redemption process came to you go into a group of men and saying, I want to submit myself to you guys. You guys watch over me. I'm, I'm yours, so to speak. Uh, number one, I think, I know that that's a picture of the gospel. The gospel and receiving Christ requires submission. I mean, first and foremost, you have to submit to the authority of Christ, but in submitting to the authority of Christ, you submit to other authorities that are over you as well. And Mike has done that in a way that God has been able to restore and redeem a lot of your life because you were willing to submit. But I'll say that to say this, that Tanya, as a wife, I can see that you're able to submit to him because you know for a fact he submitted to others. And, and, and if you're a husband that wants your wife to be submissive to you, she needs to know that you're not a loose cannon and that you are first of all submitted to other authorities so that she can safely submit to your authority. 
you're not going to get your wife to submit to you because you command it. But it's it's you, first of all, submitted to Christ as your head and to other men as as wisdom. Now your wife says, you know what, there is a past and there is some real legitimate stuff for us to consider, but because I see you submitted, I can submit to you. The best is Tanya ever will. So I know that's hard for her. So. <laughs> it is. That's a whole other side. I always, um, I always like to have the opportunity to share this with, with people. Is that, you know, It says in First John for us to confess our sins to God and He will forgive us, right? But it doesn't. It says confess your sins one to another and you'll and pray for one another and you'll be and I always ask people, I always, especially men that I talk to that are struggling with addiction, do you, do you want to be forgiven or do you want to be healed? And you, you can confess your sins to God, and, and, and that's that, that's a, that they call that the addictive cycle, where you, you act out in your addiction, you feel bad about it, you ask God to forgive you, and things get better. You feel better, and then you act out in a vicious circle that. God says, if you confess your sins to me, I'll forgive, I'll, I'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Um, you, you know, you can wash a wound out all day, but it could fester back up until you get the antibiotics. And uh, so if you're struggling with anything, it might be anything for you might be struggling with, you know, pornography or, or thievery or gossip, and you've, and you've asked God a thousand times, a thousand times to forgive you. But until you go, to, and it, did, it doesn't say you got to blast it on the foghorn in, in at the courthouse square. It says if we confess our sins one to another and pray for one another, we'll be healed. You can take a small group of people and say, I'm really in a bad place with this. Would you pray for me and hold me accountable? And as you do that and you're honest, rigorously honest, you'll, you'll receive healing. It'll go away. It'll, it'll get you, if you're a child of God, for sure, it, it will go away. In fact, if you're not a child of God, you'll, you'll, it'll go away. It'll go away if you're struggling with addiction. But it won't. You can confess it to God all day. And uh, He's so gracious to forgive you over and over again. But if you'll confess it to others, have a prayer for them, that's the way God signed, signed us up. Because He wanted us to be not simply in relationship with Him, but in relationship with, with each other. That's, that's put, that puts the real Anybody got anything else you want to ask for comments? Situation and just being newly married, and 
church and new location and everything. It's like it's really, it's really great to have a model to, to look toward, not a, uh, like a quote unquote perfect model, but a real model uh, that would the good and the bad to, to be a better follower of Christ and be a husband and to have that in our church is, is very valuable. So I think you brought it on. I talk too much, but I'm going to talk again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Jesus says, you know, it says in Ephesians that husbands love your wife and do not become embittered toward them. That's, you know, you see so many men who are bitter. You know, they're just resentful of their wife. You know, they just, they walk in the house and there they are and they just feel resentment. And they want to love their wives, but they just feel that resentment. That's a, that's a, that's a red flag you're not loving. As Christ loved the church. If you love your wife, it's, it's that barrier. It's that, it's that, uh, Perfection. So love your wife. It'll be the best thing you ever do. Love your wife. Love Jesus. Love your wife. It, it doesn't matter what you have to go through. Jesus went through a lot to love us. If you'll love your wife, it'll be the best thing you ever do. Paul said in Ephesians, he, I had to point it out to us at a conference one. He said, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he says, Wives, respect your husband. You've never heard a man say, I just don't feel loved. A man says, I don't feel respected. You've never, you've never heard a woman say, I don't feel respected. I feel loved. There's a great marriage study, which we've done a couple of mm -hmm. times, called Love and Respect. Mm -hmm. And we've gone to one of their conferences. It's amazing. And, you know... Um, Is that the crazy cycle? Yeah, the crazy cycle. I think that's the guy we saw at the conference. Yeah, he's yeah. really good. <laughs> and he, she said in one of her videos, and I've done it several times with him, she signs her cards to her husband. I love you, but she also respects, has respect, yeah. respectfully yours, your wife. You know? Yeah, the that's the core values that it says specifically is women are looking for love and men are looking for respect. And I think that's hard for women to do. That's hard to do, I think, you know, in the world we live. We want to end with this. Um, sir, we've prayed for them. We've prayed with them. Is there a response, something that we can pray with you, Ryan? I mean, there's been a lot of things said and a lot of stones uncovered. And, and like Mike said, it's, it's one thing to, to be forgiven by God himself, but then he's put you in a family here so that you might be healed. A lot of that healing comes through confession and praying for one another. And if there are ways that we can rally around you this morning and pray for your healing in your life, in your heart, in your addictions, whatever's going on, is there a way that we can be available?